I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. We are in unprecedented times in many ways, not least among them with respect to the economy. After COVID caused the most precipitous rise in unemployment on record in the spring of 2020, and the biggest peacetime ramp-up in government spending in the wake of this, we are now looking at a recovery. But will this recovery be durable as government support is withdrawn? And will the recovery, along with the generous government support, lead to high inflation? Someone who is especially well-positioned to address these questions is Dr. Julia Coronado, the founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives. Prior to founding Macro Policy Perspectives in 2017, Julia served as Chief Economist for Graham Capital Management and BNP Paribas, as a Senior Economist at Barclays Capital, and as an Economist at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Julia, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. That's great to have you on. Julia, you're a regular commentator in financial media including CNBC, Bloomberg, Marketplace, and the Wall Street Journal. In these appearances, you're commonly asked to give your forecast for the next quarter or the next year. Rather than ask you to do this now, I'm more interested in how you and your team at Macro Policy Perspectives organize your thinking about the economy, especially during such unprecedented times. First off, how do you think about the impact of vaccinations on the recovery of the economy? So first, I'll start by saying these have been humbling times for forecasters. Our conventional models and rules of thumb have been completely disrupted. uh, And the pandemic has been the undeniable driver of the economy. And yet the relationship between public health metrics, like you mentioned, vaccinations or case counts, Uh, and economic measures like GDP or jobs has been far from linear or predictable. So for example, GDP and employment bounced back very strongly last summer despite surging case counts, um, partly due to the fiscal support that households were receiving uh, and were spending even as they were hunkered down in their homes and businesses were learning how to operate safely as much as possible. Now, then we did see a lull in the winter when case counts rose and fiscal support uh, evaporated. And then now we're in the middle of, you know, a roaring comeback on the back of vaccinations and additional fiscal support. So uh, it's been hard to calibrate. And so we stay humble and do the best we can and triangulate as many data sources as we can get our hands on. So today there were new GDP numbers released. I believe that for the first quarter of 2020, the growth in GDP was 6.4%. Was that right? That's right. That's right. So that's, a very strong performance. And Q2 is tracking closer to 10%. So Yeah. So those are historically very high, but coming from 
a very low base. Correct. Julia, a recovering national income is typically associated with a recovering jobs, but in the wake of the 2008 Great Recession, job growth really lagged. Now we're also seeing lower job growth than what might be expected given those very strong GDP numbers. And people are giving a variety of possible reasons, ongoing concerns about COVID, a lack of childcare, a wave of early retirements, among others. What do you see as the current important dynamics of the labor market? And what does this portend for the recovery of employment? So first, I like to remind myself that the data that we have in hand are the preliminary estimates of economic activity, and they're subject to huge revisions. And we saw this after the Great Recession. Uh, and in addition, measuring the economy has been particularly challenging during a pandemic because data collection methods have been disrupted. Uh, so I tend to put more weight on the labor market data than the GDP data, which I take with a big grain of salt for now. And I think what we're seeing in the labor market is that there is strong momentum, um, certainly by historical standards, but that what we saw last summer, which is the reconnection of employees on layoff with their existing employers, which drove job gains in the millions, that low hanging fruit is behind us. And now we have to make you know, new matches between employers and employees at a time when business models and the geography of living and working and entertainment has been transformed and is still in a state of, of flux. So there's a debate as to whether there's some sort of speed limit to these you know, connections, these new matches. Um, for example, large companies reduced their HR departments during the pandemic and are scrambling to rebuild them so they can onboard new employees. Um, but uh, and, and then in addition, you mentioned some of the pandemic related frictions in labor supply, child care, health concerns. I can tell you, I can give you a personal anecdote. My daughter teaches at a preschool. They just had a COVID outbreak. Uh, and uh, just yesterday had to send 20 kids home and that disrupts the ability of those parents to work, et cetera. So we know that there's ongoing disruptions with childcare and schooling and health concern. Um, and so I think that we do uh, expect continued progress, continued strong job gains. And then I think there's another dynamic we're seeing, and this gets a little bit more politically controversial. You've seen people cite the fiscal support as something that's leading people to stay on the sidelines. And I don't think, you know, when I think about this, I'm not thinking just about unemployment benefits, but also just that broader fiscal stimulus payments. I do think it's given particularly lower wage workers some financial breathing room. And while this has been used by some politicians as a justification to pull back on support, I think it has given lower wage workers a stronger bargaining hand to take some time and find the right employer-employee match, find an employer uh, that maybe takes health concerns seriously. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think after a pandemic, uh, how can we conclude other than that food service workers and public facing workers don't deserve a better living standard and to be compensated for the risk that they're taking. So I'm personally pretty happy to see leisure and hospitality workers getting raises at, uh, to come back to work. 
Um, but that also might slow down that process. Uh, and it might induce some structural changes in things like restaurants. They might have to do more uh, less service oriented, more online ordering, uh, pick up at a, a, a window instead of waitress staff delivering food, et cetera. But ultimately at the end of the day, it'll be better for the broad based and inclusive realization of full employment that the Fed is trying to achieve. So Julia, a lot of things that you're talking about are not just what's going to happen in the next quarter or even the next half year, but longer term consequences. So I'd like to talk about those a little bit. One of those is what economists call job market scarring. And we have a podcast and some memos about that. It's the idea that when people enter the labor market at a particularly inopportune time, this follows them perhaps even for their whole career. What's your view of what the effect of these last months, this last year and a half, say, has been or will be for people, young people entering the labor market? That's a great question, Michael. And I think that's where we see some of the best news. I think this is, you know, we've really engaged in a fiscal experiment where instead of you know, providing as little as possible or fine tuning the support we provided. We provided really um, uh, a lot of very broad based support to a lot of households. And what we're seeing are some really interesting dynamics. For example, households are coming out of this recession with stronger credit scores, lower loan delinquencies, um, and these are some of the things that can leave lasting scars. So typically you lose a job, you might get your house foreclosed on or your car repossessed. Car repossessions are actually cut in half last year uh, from pre-COVID levels. And that's actually adding to some of the, the, the supply constraints in the used car market. Um, so that's a <clears throat> pretty unusual feature and, and directly uh, tied to the fiscal support um, that could give households a better hand uh, and a stronger hand going forward. And I think the relatively short-lived nature of the cycle and then the fact that, again, because of this fiscal and monetary support, we're not limping out of the recession. We're roaring out of the recession. And so we're seeing, not seeing the kind of terrible lingering job prospects for recent graduates and, and, and other workers. And so we think that um, one of the uh, results of this policy experiment will be less scarring, will be you know, uh, less depressed wages for workers that either experience spells of unemployment or are coming out of school and that that will give them a, a better, you know, uh, better prospects for their wages over their life cycles going forward. So, Julia, your company is called Macro Policy Perspectives. But if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit about micro perspectives. What kind of structural changes do you see coming out of this? For example, people are talking about the commercial real estate market having a long term hit from this because people realize that you might not need as much office space. People can work from home and so on. Right. There could also be, as you were alluding to earlier in hospitality and restaurant, a sea change in the way things are, are offered. What else do you see besides those two as possible microeconomic changes, structural changes in the economy as people have learned or responded to 
the kind of events that we faced over the last year and a half? It's a great question. So one, I think we have to go back to the pandemic. What is the likelihood of, you know, what are the prospects for public health going forward? And it looks like the US is not going to achieve sort of a herd immunity level of vaccination. It looks like we are seeing variants around the world now. I think what that translates into is sort of a lingering issue with possibility of resurgence that it won't be disruptive in the way it has been over the past year. We won't see shutdowns. We'll figure out a way to muddle along with it and live with it, but it's not going to go away. It's not going to be like we're going to go back to a world where we're not going to be worried about uh, transmission of, of, of the virus anymore. And I think what that means is some of the preference changes we've seen could be sticky. So we've seen huge waves of COVID migrations, people moving out of dense center cities to suburban areas or to lower cost, smaller cities that's facilitated by work from home. Some of that is likely to prove sticky. Um, you mentioned commercial real estate. What does that do to uh, to center cities and how they're used. How is that real estate used? There's some discussion of, you know, converting uh, office space into much needed housing uh, in some of these areas where office space might not come back to the same degree. Uh, so some of the geography and housing preferences, I think one of the things we saw with the pandemic is that it really unlocked what had been a hesitant millennial generation's view towards home ownership. We are now seeing that home ownership uh, that people expected from the millennials kind of pulled forward, but now we don't have enough homes for them. And so we've seen a lot of pressure on prices. So we would expect a multi-year expansion in residential construction, even as commercial construction and office space might undergo a, a more difficult restructuring cycle. So those are a few changes. Thinking about pulling things forward, another thing that people have noticed is that COVID may have accelerated the retirement of people who may have been near the cusp of retirement anyway. And this has implications for the demography of the workforce and ultimately for the economy. Yeah. Can you spell out some of the links between demography and longer term economic issues like the viability of social security, the impact on government finances and the productivity and growth of the economy? I'd be happy to. I'm, I'm a big believer in demographics as destiny. So um, yes, we've seen some retirements that possibly were pulled forward as a result of the pandemic. That exit um, accounts for roughly, I, by my estimates, about a million people uh, that were working that may not come back anytime soon uh, because they retired early. Um, but that what that means for overall labor supply really depends. I mean, <clears throat> I have learned one thing from the last cycle and that is not to prejudge the capacity of the labor market to uh, expand and to be flexible. So I think, for example, some older workers might come back in different capacities as the cycle proceeds if they find opportunities. I also think that the US is capable of higher prime age labor force participation rates and we're seeing some of the policy proposals that would be necessary to stimulate that infrastructure investment in rural areas, child care investments and subsidies that would facilitate uh, labor force participation of parents. 
these types of things, the US is lagging behind other advanced economies, we can certainly do better. That said, the bigger, bigger picture is that we've seen declining birth rates that actually crashed even further during COVID. Some of that might rebound and reduced immigration that some of that might rebound, some of it might not. But what we're looking at is basically zero population growth over the medium term horizon and demographics that look a lot more European and Japanese than we had been sort of a different demographic picture. Now we're very similar. And that determines a bit the speed limit on GDP. Implications for productivity are, again, much more difficult. Um, we are seeing a lot of investment in automation and technology transformation that could enhance productivity and be very symbiotic with a, a labor force that's not growing as quickly. So that, that there's some optimism there that we could actually see decent productivity so that living standards continue to improve even though top line growth is slowing. Um, but that's a very much an open question. Uh, I, I think there are reasons to be more optimistic about productivity growth this time around. We don't have the debt deleveraging overhang that we had last cycle that was global and I think contributed to sluggish investment. Uh, we don't have that now. So maybe we'll see, we are seeing a super strong investment rebound uh, and, and that potentially could be tied to better productivity that can, again, help provide an offset to what is going to be a demographic headwind alongside investments in, in uh, sort of human infrastructure that could unlock labor supply uh, amongst prime age workers. Yeah, we have some uh, counterfact memos on women's falling labor force participation, and we have others on immigration and the role that immigrants play yeah. in the economy. Yes. And this is, as you were saying, a really important issue. Looking at inflation, of course, this is one of the most hotly debated concerns these days. Some people are arguing that the generous government benefits along with supply disruptions will lead to higher inflation that will become embedded as it alters people's expectations. And others, including Fed Chairman Jay Paul, say that all we're seeing is a temporary blip and inflation will come down from its current high rates. We know that forecasting is difficult. Yogi Berra said it's especially difficult to forecast about the future. <laughs> so rather than ask you what you think inflation will be, what I'd like to ask is, how do you draw on your experience working at the Fed and as a financial sector economist to think about inflation forecasts? Well, that's a good question too. So um, one thing I have learned as an inflation forecaster is to not rely too heavily on macro top-down models. We run those models, we understand those models, we do use them as one guide to thinking, but we also do a very careful bottoms up to understand the different sectoral dynamics. So I'll give you an example of that. One reason that we were sort of, I guess, ahead of the curve on the low inflation we saw last cycle is that we saw a lot of secular forces at play from that bottoms up perspective. So I'll name a few demographics. There's a real pressure on public policy to lower healthcare inflation as the economy ages. So we saw a number of ACA provisions uh, and uh, enhanced competition, uh, push for more generic drugs, 
all of these measures, the, the government is a price setter in the healthcare market. They insure almost half the population and that's growing. Uh, and so they have an influence and can play a restraining force on inflation and have been. We've seen healthcare inflation come down dramatically. Uh, and then another restraining force is globalization. Uh, so again, workers have not had the bargaining power in the, uh, from the wage side. The labor share of GDP has been stuck very low. Uh, that could change. And so that's one thing we're watching. Does the labor get a stronger bargaining hand? Do they have more purchasing power to become less price sensitive? They've been very price sensitive because they haven't had that. So that's one of the things we're watching. And then a third force is technology. Technology comes in as a restraining force, both because a lot of elements of, of consumer prices are quality adjusted in our inflation metrics. So the faster the quality adjustments, the slower the inflation. Um, and also the transparency that comes with technology. We all walk around with smartphones. We can comparison shop costlessly in seconds. Uh, and that has uh, meant that even in very concentrated retail markets, uh, retailers have not had pricing power. So these forces are all still in play and in place. And, and so we're watching them to see whether there's a transformation. We also watch, as you mentioned, psychology of inflation, inflation expectations. Um, and I think there's, it's worth recalling that there was an intention by the Fed to restructure its reaction function to generate better wage price dynamics. I think we're seeing some elements of that. I agree with Chair Powell. Most of the near-term pops in inflation is an economy that's rebooting. We shut down, we rebooted, we saw wild swings in the composition of spending, the wildest we've ever seen, the shift from services spending to good spending, and now we're starting to see it shift back to services spending. That leaves businesses and supply chains scrambling and a lot of near-term frictions. We were already seeing them settle down. Lumber prices have come down. Used car prices are leveling off. These are some of the things that have driven some of the very high prints that we've seen. So, you know, I, it's, we gotta be humble, uh, but I'm pretty, I'm, I tend to be in team transitory uh, that we're going to see inflation settle back down to something that's much more manageable and not sort of a 70s style dynamic. So some people uh, lean towards the 70s uh, uh, comparison, others lean to the sort of post-World War II uh, comparison where we had a burst of fiscal spending, a burst of inflation as supply chains were catching up from a post-war uh, era. And, and then everything settled back down uh, to something that was much more uh, sanguine. And, and I think I lean towards that comparison, but of course, we're keeping our ear to the ground. Julia, for my last question, I'd like to shift gears a bit. One thing that I've learned from you is that macro policy perspectives only has women employed yeah. in it. Yeah. And that's really unusual in economics and especially unusual in macroeconomics and finance. Right. What do you find or what have you found in your various roles as an economist with respect to gender inequality or gender discrimination? And do you think things are getting better? Or are we still stuck in a place where women are not treated as well? 
So I'll start, Michael, by saying that I love being an economist. I love what I do. I've had an exciting career uh, and I have no regrets. I have, however, been a woman in a male-dominated profession. And my experience has been um, that the more, uh, I don't know, I feel like the environment in academia is probably the most toxic in terms of gender balance and treatment of women. Um, I think at the Fed, there were definitely some uh, issues that just in terms of, it's, it's a lot of it comes down to um, the sort of uh, subtle uh, biases, you know, the, the uh, unconscious bias, I think, is the term that people use, where you have to kind of, as a woman in a room where a forecast is being debated or research is being presented, you kind of have to prove yourself twice, three times over before you're taken seriously. Uh, and so the bar is a bit higher to reach the status so the promotions that follow, you know, are lagged and, and, and I did find that at the Fed. And in fact, the Feds recognized that when I was there, you know, the women that were getting promoted had been there for much longer than the men promoted to similar positions and had published more articles and done more uh, policy work. Uh, and, and, and they're working very hard, I think, to establish protocols that will change that. Um, in the private sector, again, sort of similar unconscious biases, although I think what I like about private sector economics is that if you're right and you're smart and people find your views useful in terms of making decisions, um, they will listen to you. And so I found actually a, a great home in, in finance. Uh, and despite the fact that it's got a pretty terrible reputation and there aren't a lot of us out there, uh, but we did actually, myself and my business partner, Laura Rosner, we did decide to go independent partly so that we didn't have to deal with some of these things and we could just do what we do best uh, and not be in an institutional environment where these kinds of unconscious biases can hold us back. Our clients sign up because they value our views. We exchange our views with them openly and respectfully, and it's very gratifying. And, uh, and we've built a successful business. So it's been uh, a lot of fun and sort of the right place for us. Well, I hope that the prominence of people like Janet Yellen and Lael Brainerd, who is actually my boss at Treasury and is now on the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, and you yourself, Julia, I hope that that helps demonstrate uh, a new world in, in a way in which this gender discrimination is reduced. Yeah. So yeah. thank you very much for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. I did too. Thank you for having me. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.